Hello, and we're back with a new episode of Futurism. Uh, unfortunately, Nicholas couldn't come out here today, but I'm going to be the host for today. So hopefully you guys are good with that. Uh, I actually have a pretty interesting guest from the Alt Protein Project. So hello, Lauren, would you uh, like to, you know, introduce yourself and sort of what you're doing, uh, you know, not only at Hopkins, but also a little bit of like what the Alt uh, Protein Project is for all our viewers. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you so much for the invitation. I would love to tell you about the Alt Protein Project. So the Alt Protein Project is a group that I co-founded along with Mackenzie Simon Collins. She's currently an undergrad in public health. Mm -hmm. I'm a biophysics uh, graduate student here, a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. But I was uh, teaching a class on food of the future um, just covering different technologies for growing like the next generation animal products. Mm -hmm. And Mackenzie was in my class. And after that class ended, uh, we decided to start a student group, um, Alt Protein Project. It's just one chapter of many. Um, and this actually is an initiative out of the Good Food Institute. The Good Food Institute is a nonprofit organization that is trying to pioneer all these different future food technologies. So we're we're just, um, you know, the Johns Hopkins All Protein Project chapter. Awesome, awesome. And actually, uh, to go along with that, so are you focused more on ideas or conversations? Uh, is it more about like searching for new alternative proteins or potentially like converting people from, you know, animal-based proteins to like more plant-based proteins? Like, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I so... For, for the record, uh, we are not interested in, you know, making the whole world vegan or, you know, turning Hopkins vegan or anything. Um, that is not our primary focus, although our group does attract a lot of vegans. I'm, I'm vegan myself, and uh, we have many vegans in the group who are passionate about this. But our, our group is, uh, you know, not necessarily to convince people to have lifestyle changes, but rather to convince people to help champion some of these technologies. So the theory of change for our Alt Protein Project and Good Food Institute is that uh, these technologies will enable some of these consumer choices that, you know, more, uh, more sustainable um, consumer choices. So for example, um, many people had never had a veggie burger before Impossible Foods came around. So Impossible Foods is one of the first uh, really famous alt-protein companies, as is uh, Beyond Meat. Right. Um, and Impossible Foods uh, really, you know, they had this technology platform that enabled them to have, you know, a really meaty burger. And now tons of people had, have had veggie burgers and now it's just an easier choice for them to make. So we want to enable the innovation and research that uh, that you know helped companies like impossible foods to launch their product so in, in the case of impossible foods that's like a plant-based product it has plant-based protein in it but also uses fermentation derived hemoglobin from a, a soy plant actually um and then there's other technologies like cultured meat that are another pillar of this alternative protein movement 
Right. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the the Impossible Burger because I remember hearing a lot about it like a few years ago uh, when it was just starting to pop out. And eventually when actually Burger King, funny enough, Burger King actually came up with their Impossible Whopper. I was like, oh, this is like the perfect yeah. opportunity to go and like try it because it sounded like such an interesting product. I tried it out and actually like in my opinion, it was like pretty good. Like comparing it to like a regular burger obviously there are some differences here and there but like overall like the taste and everything i think i think it was pretty good in my opinion so it's kind of crazy just like the reach that impossible has been able to add with like a variety of their products even going as far as like to introduce themselves into a fast food like chain market yeah it, that that's great to hear you say that really encouraging um, they've, you know, they've worked really hard to reach price parity. I think there's still a little bit of a premium on the Impossible and the Beyond Meat burgers, um, co just compared to, you know, the cheapest burger you can get. But mm -hmm. they, they've really been scaling up their their technology, and they reached price parity really quickly. I'd say, at least compared to, you know, some more higher end burgers. And it, it's great to hear uh, people say, you know, I, I really liked it. I could barely tell the difference. I know in some of their consumer studies, they were saying that they passed some of these blind taste tests where people could, if they were blinded they or they didn't know what they were eating, they would have thought that it was meat. And I think definitely veggie burgers. I, you know, I've been vegetarian since for like 20 years. I, I think I was 11 years old when I became vegetarian. And I, so I grew up on Morningstar burgers and Boca burgers. Those do not compare at all. And so I'm just really excited to see, you know, a, a huge population enjoying veggie burgers, essentially. Yeah, for sure. And actually going into the sort of like why the all, all alternate uh, protein project. So like uh, how and what you said that like a chapter here at Hopkins, right? But like originally, how and why was it created? Like, what was the original statement for creating this alternative uh, protein project? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, okay, so it started in 2020. The the alt protein project as a whole, we didn't join until 2021. So we were on the second round of alt protein project chapters. Uh, the first few chapters that started, we, there were just five in 2020. I think they were at UC Berkeley, UC Davis, uh, Colorado Boulder, and uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and also Tel Aviv in Israel. And the reason that these were the pilot uh, chapters, the reason that they got started is because the Good Food Institute that I mentioned earlier, so th they're a nonprofit and they're they're trying to champion these technologies of plant-based fermentation derived and cultured or stem cell derived meat products. And it's also not just meat. It's also dairy and eggs and fish and any kind of ingredient that will help make food healthier or more sustainable and not animal derived. Um, so that nonprofit Good Food Institute um, got these five chapters to start um, as kind of a pilot run. And they're, they realize that universities are an engine for innovation in, in anything. Um, so if you look at any sort of technology out there in clean tech, biotech, a lot of that research starts at the university level. And the only way that they can really, uh, you know, the only way you can really reach 
start this research is if you learn about it. And so students are very, and are, as it turns out, are very passionate. And there's a lot of leaders in student. Yeah, there's a lot of leaders out there um, amongst students at different universities around the world who are capable of kind of galvanizing professors, um, grad students, undergrad staff, and um, and whatnot to kind of get this research started, but also get education started. So some of the first initiatives that these all protein project chapters were doing was just spreading awareness, you know, having some this, well, to be fair, this started in 2020. So that was the pandemic, but it, it kind of start before, you know, the pandemic hit there, they were having tastings, they were having um, social meetups and just like, lectures, um, guest lectures, journal clubs, things like that. And once the pandemic hit, there were a lot of webinars with industry leaders in this space and uh, courses online and just different presentations. So we're spreading awareness, building community, um, building research capabilities eventually. But before you before you build these research capabilities, you really got to educate people. Um, yeah, so education, research, community building, awareness building, also business development. That's another one of our pillars of, you know, st our strategies for sharing this technology and encouraging innovation in this space. Interesting. So I guess to go along with that, like, uh, what are your, some of your actually favorite like protein alternatives? Cause I know that, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, like, it's very much on a case by case basis, but like, what would you say are some of your like favorite alternative protein sources that you use on a daily basis or that have worked for you? Yeah, so alternative protein, you know, I kind of don't like that word sometimes because alternative, I mean, alternative proteins that we, that we talk about in the all protein project, it includes things like soy and pulses, like legumes and beans and nuts and whatnot. So, I, that's what, you know, I've been vegan for many years now, vegetarian for even longer. And I've always loved tempeh and tofu, as well as beans and, and lentils. And yeah, I, I like all of those, quote unquote, alternative proteins. They were never alternative for me. They were uh, my primary choice. And so that's always been my favorite. I try to follow personally, like, a healthy vegan diet. It's really easy not to do a vegan diet uh, healthy because there's so many, there's so many uh, substitutes now, which is a great thing. And I'm really happy about it, but now I just have to be more careful. So I do usually opt for not the impossible burger. Maybe I'll have that once every, you know, a couple times a year for holidays uh, or celebrations, but I usually opt for the healthy ones, but don't get me wrong. I do love the impossible burger on like a 4th of July weekend or something like that. So I have, yeah, I, I guess I'd say I I'd usually opt for the, the legumes and the soy, soy products. Yeah. I think, I think that's really good. Cause especially like I personally am a person who also like eat obviously like beef or like chicken and a lot of these things, but at the center of a lot of it, especially cause you know, ethnically like being Mexican, like one of the major things is beans as well. So that's always like an extra protein source that I'm constantly eating as well. So I can definitely see how like 
me just eating beans is not really like that much of a quote-unquote like issue right if i'm able to get like a lot of protein from it so i definitely see how like it's very easy to like shift from one protein source to like another especially like depending on like your culture because that might be something that's already like pretty well cemented into what you're eating on like a pretty weekly basis as well it's interesting that you say that because that's one of the critiques of calling it alt protein. I mean, you have to call it something. I'm not really sure what the best term is, but it's like, why are you, I think one of the, the founders of um, Miyoko's Creamery, they make vegan cheese and she hates it when people call them alt protein. Cause she's like, this is just, you know, it's just protein. It's a cashew based cheese. And she says so many cultures survived on these quote-unquote alternative proteins for centuries um so she she really doesn't like that we call it alt protein um just because it's you know the primary protein for so many cultures i guess not the u.s but other places yeah yeah no and it really i think that also kind of goes to show how in a way we become like so cemented in the idea of just like protein really being animal-based where we sort of forget how many places of nutrition we actually get from so many other things uh specifically just like plant like vegetables like fruits a lot of the stuff that we need to survive and thrive not just protein but a lot of other macro nutrients that we really need and we sometimes just forget about it because i guess you know and like chicken and meat a lot of this just seems like so much easier to obtain nowadays so people have just kind of cemented into the everyday household or everyday thinking that these are just the only sources of protein that you can really get at. Right. I mean, especially in the U S I think in other countries, I mean, especially like in China, um, you know, tofu is a staple ingredient there, but here in the U S if you're eating tofu, you know, they're like, Oh, ew, that's for vegetarians. But you know, you don't have to be vegetarian to eat tofu. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I was, I was thinking actually of an example of something that does contain a lot of protein, but I, I'm not exactly sure if I. I mean, technically, like it's an animal, but it's not like a big animal. So, like, um, I know a company. I don't exactly remember the name, and it's also a thing in Mexico as well. But um, like, basically, I think eating a type of insect. I don't remember if it was like crickets. Uh, or something like that. So in Mexico, for example, uh, like my mom has sort of like been around this and seen people eat it. Like she hasn't personally, but it's like very popular in like ranches or like different communities in Mexico to eat like crickets. And, Mm -hmm. you know, based on even just environmental issues, if if we're going along with that, like the production of meat in both like beef and chicken can be like pretty detrimental to the environment. Like there have been studies that kind of show this. And, you know, they use a lot of water. Like there's a whole bunch of different things that uh, go into it. But like crickets, for example, in order to harvest like the same amount of protein from a crickets uh, versus their equivalent in like chicken or beef, it requires like far less nutrients. It requires a lot less like uh, labor and it's less harmful just on the land that these crickets are being like actually harvested in. So, um, and actually they provide like a pretty good amount of protein as well for like their body content, which is actually pretty surprising. So um, would you say that like that can also potentially be one of the ways in that we can shift our focus from like more 
like larger animal base to something that is a little bit less, you know, potentially harmful to the environment? Would you say like that's a good um, sort of point to pivot towards? I I think people should do whatever they can, you know, whatever's in their personal willpower and uh, in order to make differences in their diet for health reasons or sustainability reasons. So, uh, I mean, you mentioned the insects and I I think the Good Food Institute does not necessarily uh, promote insect agriculture as one of their pillars, but it's certainly a it is certainly a category that is being explored. And I, I've seen several different startups exploring this in the U.S. Um, and the problem is, uh, in the U.S. especially, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, just keep mentioning the U.S. because that's where I'm from and that's what I'm most familiar with in terms of the market and consumer, consumer behavior. But the insect agriculture usually is kind of repulsive to people here, but yeah, in other cultures, people eat insects all the time and it's totally normal. And they, you're right. They do have high protein and furthermore, not only do they have high protein, but they have actually a pretty good uh, conversion rate in terms of how many calories they need to take in to convert that into protein. I don't I I don't know the numbers off of the top of my head, but you're right. I mean, some of these larger animals like uh, cows, they end up being very they don't have great conversion of calories to protein or calories to final uh, to calories even. So cows are like the least efficient in terms of, okay, if we are giving you this much water, giving you this much uh, food over your entire lifetime. And like, you don't get that many calories out um, Mm -hmm. after you slaughter the animal. Chickens are a little bit more efficient. So poultry in general is more efficient. And then uh, fish, even more efficient. And then insects, (laughs) even more efficient. But I'm pretty sure plants generally are the most efficient at converting, you know, carbon sources or water or yeah, just other nutrients in the soil into final calories, which is and protein for the, for that matter. So that's just one argument for, you know, choosing the plant-based option because we don't always think about okay, well, um, plants, you do have to grow them, but they don't take nearly as long as it takes to grow an animal to it, the slaughter size. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, cause you mentioned like, what would I recommend someone you know, go for insects or fish or chicken instead of beef? Absolutely. You, you know, if that's, it'll probably be better for your health to go for these, some of these smaller organisms. And but it, beef is one of the worst offenders in terms of climate change impact or yeah climate impact. Um, it uses the most water, it uses the most land, it uses the most uh, calories, and also has cows tend to have the most waste because they're so big and most carbon emissions. Right, right. No, yeah, it, it totally does make sense, especially because, you know, cows being such large animals, especially like you have to take care of a lot of them uh, like you. And it's basically people don't really see this as well. But uh, when especially you're doing a lot of farming, like 
especially of these large animals, you really have to take into account like every need that they may have. Like if a cow gets sick or if anything happens, like there's a lot of money that goes into it as well. So it's not only just about making sure that uh, you get the meat out at the end of the day, but also like taking care of these animals until they get to that point, which can be pretty stressful for the people that are working on these things, like people who work in like chicken farms or just like regular farms. Like it's pretty difficult as well to handle these animals. So I definitely do see a benefit from just going straight to the plant route or just like better, more efficient and easier to deal with animals as well. So I, I definitely see that point. Yeah, you just reminded me of another key reason why we are doing this and that's antibiotic resistance. And basically you hit the nail on the head. These animals, they get sick all the time, especially because they're in these confined environments and they're not well taken care of. They're not, you know, if you don't ever go to like a factory farm, you will be so sad and so disgusted. Um, But they, in order to, in order to combat these potential diseases, they have to like just pump them full of antibiotics. And as it turns out, Uh, Out of all the antibiotics that we have in existence, 70% of them end up being used on animals. It's like, oh, and it's also the perfect breeding ground for new novel viruses and and uh, novel viruses and bacteria to combine like all this. uh, What do they call it? Horizontal gene transfer can occur. Mm -hmm. You put, you know, cows and chickens and bats and all all this stuff um, in one one place and they're getting sick, they have open wounds, of course you're going to get some pandemic. Uh, I mean, there's a huge concern that pandemics, uh, you know, like COVID-19, that was an animal, that came from an animal as well, from a, 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 a live market actually um, with wild animals. But we'll probably expect to see more of that if we don't address this antibiotic abuse. (laughs) Like we're really abusing these antibiotics. And so the bacteria are getting so much better at evading and evolving to resist these antibiotics that we're giving to animals. But we need those ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's honestly, that's also one been one of my concerns, not necessarily for animals, because I never really thought about it, but you're completely right. But also just on people in general and how viruses evolved, uh, because, you know, comparing like a virus from 100 years ago to one now, they're way more resistant. And that's also the reason why we've seen a lot of variants to the COVID-19 uh virus which initially started all this you know we had like a whole bunch of major changes within the virus itself so we got like the delta virus which started to make its wave and now the new one which is obviously like far less dangerous but also is spreading a lot more and that's why we've we've been getting these uh new shots so it's actually pretty interesting that uh and you're right like a lot of these uh farms a lot of these like keeping up animals do tend to increase the risk of breeding grounds for new viruses which can of course like turn into other diseases or like worse pandemics perhaps than we may have seen in the past so that's actually a pretty interesting um thing i think do you think then that obviously like uh going to other sources of protein would obviously alleviate this uh what are your thoughts actually on lab grown meat i know that like specifically like nicholas has really uh sort of 
charged with this idea that he thinks that this is a really you know great technology that can be further implemented to have obviously like the benefit of having like quote unquote like animal meat while at the same time like reducing the effects that we have on the earth by actually raising a lot of these animals and having them in like very confined spaces and potentially like having a breeding grounds for like new uh, diseases and stuff. So what, what, what are your thoughts on lab-grown meat and like its development? Yeah, I gotta say, I'm really excited about lab-grown meat. I don't know that I'll eat it myself, but the product is not for me. It's not, it's for people who really like meat, but don't want to give it up for uh, you know, sustainability concerns. Um, so lab grown meat could be a solution so that people can have their meat and eat it too, kind of. And, and it has, it has come a long way since I I think uh, Mark Post had the first cultured meat burger in 2013, I believe. So they've been working on this since, um, late or yeah 2010 or so and i think the first cultured meat burger was about three hundred thousand dollars and that's not for all the r d and the personnel and everything that was actually how much it cost with all the growth factors and just the material that was used to make it it was three hundred thousand dollars but now it's gone down like that i mean a thousand times (laughs) um and I, you know, I don't know exactly the price point of cultured meat right now. And it's not on, it's only being sold in Singapore as of now. That's the only place it's approved to be sold. Although a lot of companies in the U.S. are, uh, there There has been a FDA green light to start with the approval process. I don't think it's officially, officially approved yet, uh, but it will probably see that in the next year. And then they'll start selling it. Um, they're starting off with hybrid products mostly. So not completely cultured meat, but you can have maybe 10% cultured meat or, you know, in some cases, 75% cultured meat. I've heard different companies say different percentages that they're planning to launch with, but they're having a, they're having plant protein in there still to provide some more structural integrity and just allow the cultured meat to be, to enter the market before it's completely scaled up to the amount of meat that we have today. Um, There is a significant scaling process that's going to happen, have to happen. And it's um, so it, it will be sold at a premium initially, but I, I do, I am excited and I do, I do believe that it will scale up effectively. Some people disagree. One of those people is actually the CEO of Impossible Foods, Pat Brown. So, okay, yeah, of course, he has uh, some bias. (laughs) He has a plant-based and fermentation-derived product, but he gave the analogy, what did he say? He said, you know, making meat out of stem cells from a cow is like trying to grow the muscle cells of a horse instead of making a car. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, he's basically saying, like, it's just so unnecessary. Just make the car if you need to drive. Basically, just make the plant-based burger or use fermentation because it's so much easier and more straightforward mm-hmm. than cultured meat. 
Um, yeah, you know, take his opinion with a grain of salt, as you should everyone else's. Um, but, <laughs> you know, uh, of course, you know, people in the cultured meat field disagree with this. They say, you know, this is how we're going to get, you know, premium products. This is how we're going to get lab-grown steaks, right? I mean, Impossible Foods doesn't have a lab-grown. They don't have a steak product. They don't have a whole muscle cut mm-hmm. um, or a chicken breast. They have all this ground stuff, um, ground beef and hamburger patties and chicken nuggets and things like that. Um, so it, it's, it's, it would be hard using plant-based and fermentation-derived methods or ingredients to make a whole structured product. And also some people are still really, they still are not convinced about impossible or beyond products. They say it it does. I I can tell the difference from a mile away. Like it doesn't taste like meat at all. I don't know if I believe them. I'm like, really? Wow. Your palate must be really tuned. Um, But you know, a lot of people say this, so you have to, you have to hear them out. Um, people like that, they want cultured meat and they want the real taste of meat, the real taste and texture. So we, we do have to, cultured meat is like a great solution to this, um, to having structured products, to having the right taste and texture. Um, also nutritional benefits too. Gotta add that in there. Um, I am excited about cultured meat, even though, you know, it doesn't really appeal to me personally, but I, I think it'll, I think the technology will be there very soon for it to be cost competitive. Yeah. I think at least to me, like speaking as like a college student, like somebody that has to cook a lot of the time and definitely like I am using my, um, the work that I do at Hopkins to sort of fund whatever I eat throughout the week. Uh, like definitely like cost does seem to affect like my purchasing decisions a lot of the times so mm-hmm. i can definitely see how especially if you're able to bring the price down for a lot of these things especially on like the vegetable side right a lot of these uh like you were saying like impossible burgers or maybe all these other like alternatives to like regular patties or whatever like ground meat which somebody else like might potentially like buy in this place i feel like for most people that would be like a bigger consideration than the actual taste just because so many people are especially like price conscious about the stuff that they buy i think for most people like the nutrition they're not really thinking about it as much unless you're you know doing a little bit more competitive maybe you're taking care of your health maybe i don't know you're a bodybuilder or an athlete that really requires specific like nutritional goals maybe i don't know you have to hit like 200 grams of protein like every day in order to hit your maximum goal of gaining muscle or recovery or whatever the case may be i definitely do think that as the prices go down more people will start to buy into the idea specifically of looking for other sources of protein and honestly this is something that i believe as well uh like throughout history at least like early history like a lot of the protein that we think of today as being mainstream so a lot of the beef a lot of the chicken a lot of those things were actually like pretty hard to come by like they weren't as available like it was definitely a premium to be able to have like a nice steak uh, and so back in the day, a lot of people would just go and resort to vegetables and their diets were actually like much healthier. And, and it's a shift that we've seen throughout history just because of the availability of food that we have. And that just makes the choices of food that we eat just kind of a lot worse just because now our taste buds, regardless of 
price because everything is so low really dictate how we eat and you know these comes with adverse effects to our health and just the way that we live our lives so i personally do believe that like having a premium um meat products even though some people may disagree with this i personally think that it is personally better especially like me coming from mexico where sure like meat is still a bit of a premium and my mom would tell me this when she was little uh like my grandmother struggled a little bit like whenever my mom was young to buy food and stuff like that and the cheaper alternatives and pretty much what was available for the price that that she wanted to pay in mexico were a lot of vegetables were a lot of fruits a lot of the stuff that nowadays we would sort of pay a premium for because they're healthy and whenever they would have more money or more funds they would go ahead and buy meat right so at the end of the day that provided a inherently just better diet due to circumstances and that's personally the way that i believe things should be a little bit even if others may disagree i feel like that's a better turnaround because not only do we reduce the amount of uh potentially harmful things that we do to the earth just due to farming but also the intake that we get from a lot of these like different foods you hit the nail on the head ricardo and you made so many good points there i'm just like completely agreeing with you uh, yeah i think the biggest thing is people uh, people more more and more people don't see a meal as a meal unless it has meat in it and they forget that you know meat is actually an incredibly expensive and inefficient process we've had centuries to refine the process mm -hmm. and uh, make it as cheap as as we possibly can using a lot of really cruel methods and environmentally unsanitary and unsafe methods um, but we've made it so cheap and it's also subsidized by the government. Um, so there's that too. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons it's so cheap. So I, I get all the time, like, oh, I can never be vegan. It's way too expensive. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like where, what are, what are you trying to eat? Are you trying to eat impossible burgers every single meal? Or even those are not that expensive anymore. Are you trying to eat like these fancy vegan cheeses every day? Um, it's actually vegan food is actually or plant-based food in general is actually pretty affordable meat. It usually it, without those subsidies, it's not, it's not usually that affordable. So you usually it is more rare to have um, and therefore people who couldn't afford it were healthier and yeah, they didn't have all these heart problems that people who eat meals or people who eat a diet heavy in meat have, usually tend to have like heart disease, cancer, things like that. And also evolutionarily, um, I'm not an I, I'm not an expert in human evolution, but I know that we were hunter gatherers, and when our bodies are not designed to handle so much meat, I'm not saying we're herbivores, but I am. We are definitely omnivores and but we can be herbivores if we want um because evolutionary speaking evolutionarily speaking <laughs> uh we did not used to come by animal meat that often as during our hunter-gatherer stage it was i mean if you did you'd have to run really fast <laughs> and do all this cardio to to earn it uh so that that's just you know, one thing I always think about is uh, for a reason why it is healthier to be, you know, herb herbivore or, you know, 
flexitarian, you know, mostly eating or treating meat as like a celebratory thing or something that's rare. Um, that's so much closer to our, probably our natural human diet mm-hmm. uh, that we evolved to handle. But it, yeah, it's also it, it, economically speaking, it just doesn't, um, it, it's not usually this easy to obtain so much meat and have it at every meal. Like so many people do nowadays. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that I've definitely like taken a look at, especially as somebody that like goes to the gym pretty often, obviously, like I want to hit my goal of getting as much protein as possible. But I obviously have to diversify it. I can't like I'll eat eggs, I'll eat like chicken and stuff like that. But I definitely need to diversify my protein intakes, just because I can't see myself like for both lunch and dinner like eating chicken like i have to mix it up with vegetables in there because either way like otherwise i'll feel really terrible like i just personally feel like especially people that have digestive like issues a lot of these things like processing meat within your body can also be pretty hard on your system as well so like you said we aren't necessarily designed to just all the time just be eating a lot of these big heavy protein sources which most generally a lot of people think of as the only protein sources that we really have which i personally also think is can be really detrimental especially if you have a more like fragile system or a system that isn't really designed to uh appeal to that and just as we have many differences with like allergies you know some people are uh lactose intolerant versus people that are not i feel like everybody's system is also different and at the same time you can't really tell everybody that like eating meat all the time is necessarily good for you so i definitely see that aspect of things and and actually going into that i guess as somebody that does want to get like a lot of protein in me or you know bodybuilders and you know people that really generally do a lot of sports and do need to regain a lot of those uh the tears and the fibers of the muscles back using protein sources what would you say is the most like beneficial or the most like protein heavy source that you know of besides like a lot of these meat uh alternatives that we have been using for a while yeah i I gotta admit again i want to emphasize i'm not a nutritionist and by any means i'm a biophysicist i study proteins on the molecular level um (laughs) not on the nutrition level but as a long-term vegan and vegetarian i i can say like some of the best protein sources that that i know of and i also like to lift and rock climb and run and stuff too so I, i do worry about my protein intake um so Vital wheat gluten, it's it's not good if you're gluten intolerant, but it has it's that protein part of of wheat and it actually makes a really stringy meat like substance when cooked and it has huge amount of protein. Um, that and tempeh and tofu are, those are really, really protein dense, you know, the amount of grams of protein per grams of you know the thing it's pretty comparable to like a chicken breast so i definitely recommend adding some tempeh and it's also pretty cheap like i i don't know i i shop at uh safeway and harris teeter whole foods trader joe's um you know tofu and tempeh are really really inexpensive and if you have an air fryer definitely just throw them in the air fryer and they'll be so crispy and perfect. But if you don't have an air fryer, um, you know, you can just throw them in the oven or fry them in oil if you so please. And 
it's uh it's it, they're really good and they they people say like oh it tastes like nothing i'm like well chicken t- also tastes like nothing until you season it right. <laughs> so yeah season season it um you gotta you gotta add seasoning just like you would to a chicken um season it with the same seasonings you use for chicken and uh yeah it's it's not it's not i wouldn't call it a meat substitute it's not really meaty some of these things seitan or that's the vital wheat gluten um that can be quite meaty but tofu and tempeh eh, they're their own thing their own category don't eat them expecting them to taste like meat because they they're not meat but they're they're really good any like despite not being meat (laughs) um definitely give them a try but yeah i i hope people get it as they get into some of these alternative meat products like impossible burgers or beyond burgers or there's like vegan eggs now vegan egg scramble just egg i really like that vegan cheeses i hope that people also try to explore some of these traditional protein sources that are plant-based too because they're really really good and they're really good for you yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, and I think with that, I think we can end this conversation here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed having this conversation. Maybe later on, uh, we can have another discussion, maybe in some time uh, as well, just to see how the alternative protein uh, project is going and sort yeah. of see what the progress is. Maybe this podcast has been able to give you guys uh, more of uh, exposure on campus as well, because I didn't know of this. So hopefully the people that are listening to this are also able to go ahead and follow you on your Instagram and sort of connect with you as well, uh, just so you get more members and you're able to, you know, just get more awareness of all the different protein sources that we have. And like you said, not necessarily call them like alternative proteins, but the rightful proteins that they are. Uh, you know, and implement yeah. them in new and fun ways that, you know, and one of the things that I try to think about is don't don't go in it with the idea of trying to make it taste like traditional like meat, right? Just go in right. with a brand new understanding of this is a new food that I'm trying out. Think of it as like a brand new culture, right? You're trying food from somewhere else, just appreciate the flavors that come with it. And hopefully that'll make the transition and just the adoption of that food a little easier into your everyday life. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I can just drop our Instagram handle. It's at J2 Alt Protein. And uh, you can check out our website by Googling uh, Alt Protein Project at Johns Hopkins. We have a Slack workspace that I encourage everyone to join. That one, you'll probably have to email us. We're at we're jhualtprotein at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me personally on LinkedIn or um, email lblake8 at jhu.edu. I'm really happy to chat with you and see how you can get involved. I'm actually no longer the president of the group. I am a, a advisor now. Um, Emily Yao, she's the current president of the group. She's a materials science major. And so she would love to onboard you as either like a leader or a general member. Um, we're, we're definitely always looking to expand and have more involvement and more collaborations on campus like this. Yeah, so thank you so much again for being here, for explaining all your great knowledge and all your experience that you've had uh, with this great project and uh, this great, uh, the progress that you've had as well. So thank you so much for coming in and for all of you lovely viewers that uh, have made it to the end, thank you so much for watching another episode and I hope you catch us on our next one. And again, I'm Ricardo and it was so nice to have an episode. Thank you. Thanks Ricardo.